episode of All the Year Round, a monthly podcast about British and Irish literature and culture in the 19th century. I'm your host, Emma Provet, and I research literary connections between Jane Austen and Elizabeth Gaskell and the novel of manners. And I'm Hayley Flynn, and I research dream and periodicals in the 19th century. And welcome to our third and our final Road Trip Diary of the Summer. This month, we decided to visit Elizabeth Gaskell's house for Elizabeth Gaskell's birthday. Woo! Pop emojis. <laughs> Happy birthday, Elizabeth Gaskell. So before we get started with the episode, Hayley and I just wanted to jump in to talk about a few accessibility considerations to think about for any of our listeners who might want to visit Elizabeth Gaskell's house themselves. Yeah. So our first one up was accessible parking. Yes, something that we noticed um, as soon as we got there. Um, you, They do have accessible parking, as stated on their website, but you should phone ahead if you want to use it because the space is small. There's probably space for two cars, but that is being pretty generous. Um, so you do need to call ahead uh, and then they can, they can reserve that space for you. And there is an uh, entrance to the house literally right next to the the accessible parking so that's incredibly convenient if you're not using the accessible parking the road to the side of Gaskell's house you can only stay there for three hours so that's also something to consider yes also just onto that it also has one of those things and you know I don't drive a car Haley's so this is all the news to me but it has one of those things it's like three hours and then you can't come back within yeah. an hour yeah it's no return so that's something yeah. to consider yeah yeah precisely um so moving on to some of the positives it is an accessible household so from that entrance from the accessible parking they do have lifts throughout the household so you don't have to go up any of the stairs yeah and an accessible toilet as well um which is pretty much i think if i'm rem- remembering correctly as soon as you do go through the entrance if you're trying to find that. The other thing that we wanted to mention was about food at Gaskell House, because they do have a cafe. Yes, yes, they do. And they have a fantastic selection of cakes, as we mentioned towards the end of our episode, because Amy and I, we did, did indulge in a lovely orange clementine cake. But having said that, the cake selection is a little bit limited and when we were there because me and Haley stole the last two slices they only had cakes with they had two cakes on display and unfortunately the only cakes they had left were two cakes with nuts in them so if you have any specific allergies you know there's other stuff there you can buy packets of crisps there's tea there's sort of a daily soup that's sort of their main savory aspect there but if you have very specific dietary requirements, it might be safest to bring your own or you can phone up Gaskell House to see what options they do have for you. It's also worth noting that the house can get quite busy and there are volunteers in all of the rooms and they will approach you on entering. So if you need to take a break, if you want some quiet space for yourself, be like Elizabeth Gaskell and flee to the garden. It's a lovely space out there. It's really quiet for central Manchester as well. Um, So you should be able to have some downtime and relax there before going back in and exploring. Yeah, highly recommend. And the final note that we wanted to make is about 
the closing times because they are not necessarily as listed on the website. On the day that we visited, as you'll see in the um, in the recording to come, we believed that the house was to close at half past four, but it actually closed, uh, began to close at about five to four, ten to four, um, which when we spoke to a volunteer, we found out was because uh, the times change depending on the volunteers availability so they recommended that if you do need to be there um, for at a particular time or maybe if you're visiting on the latter half of the day and you want to make sure that there's going to be enough time to see everything you should phone ahead in advance to double check the times because they are changeable because we didn't get a chance to see William Gaskell's study because it is the first room of the house and one of the most popular. Yes. So it's something to bear in mind. But we did see lots of other wonderful things. We did. So it's time that we finish up with our housekeeping and we get onto the household. Let's start the episode. So did you know that Plymouth Grove wasn't actually going to be a forever home? No. Or at least in her own mind, it wasn't. <laughs> okay, so if you remember her last novel, Wives and Daughters, mm-hmm. she accumulated quite a lot of money for it. She was kind of running this up a bit, a little bit ragged. And it's because she secretly bought a house in Alton. Uh, actually, it's in Hampshire, the same county that Jane Austen was in. Um, mm. I know. Um, and Alton's like the nearest little, little town between where Chawton House is and where um, the lawn that's what it's called it's called the lawn the house that Gaskell bought and she bought it before she even saw it uh there were several yeah. i know <laughs> i thought so there were several listings that was the one that um her daughters went to go and see and they got and it was all kept secret from william and they got it and so on top of the actual initial purchase the plan was essentially she was going to purchase it she was going to um refurnish it because they all looked at it and Gaskell and her daughters literally called the furniture in there hideous. They were like, we can't do this. <laughs> She's like, I need an extra £500 to refit this because I hate it. Um, and that's where she kind of thought that she would end her life. The plan that she had initially was to rent it out for three years, kind of reap some money back hmm. from it, and then tempt William to basically move down south with her. Everyone pretty much agrees that wasn't going to happen, like, William loved Manchester. He like stayed here as for as much of the time as possible, aside when he went on like his walking holidays. Um, and it just wasn't going to happen. It was a bit of a pipe dream. Mm. Ironically, though, it, it is where Gaskell dies. Oh, yeah. I thought she died in Manchester. No, nope. no, yeah. It's... Okay, how did that come about? So they're actually all at the lawn. Um, I think it's one of those times where the person that she wants to rent it to wants to give much less than Gaskell had hoped Mm. um, that they would rent it for. So she sat around with her daughters and um, actually believe one of her sister's um, husbands, she wanted sort of a male opinion, but obviously doesn't want to tell William yet. She hasn't even told him that she has a house. (laughs) She literally packs him off to London for, I think, a weekend (laughs) so that she can go away without him realising. And she sat there. I think that they've they've come back from church. I think there's some tea things out and they're chatting. And she's in the middle of the sentence and she just dies instantaneously. Wow. Yeah, the children, they try to get brandy. They try various flannels. But once the doctor's there, they're just like, yeah, she died instantaneously. There was literally nothing you could have done. Yeah. 
bit harsh because we don't like text or phones and they were in a tiny house in Alton. Um, oh, that must have been so horrible. Yeah, for the kids as well. Like, And then they had to sort of get a hold of William and they telegram him eventually so he knows that something's wrong. Um, and it all sort of unravels from there. Yeah, and that must have been such a crazy shock to him, not only with her death, but also where she was and the, the house that she owned. And it must have been a very kind of shocking, shocking time all around. For a really brief moment, he seems to have, in the grief of it, thought that he would just move down there like she wanted to but then I think kind of reality sets in a little bit and I think that they end up selling the house and burying Elizabeth and kind of moving on um with everything because he he lives for a little while um after her mm. and then we kind of fall into you know what happens with Perth Grove yeah what did happen after that so we have Meta and Julia, so Meta's the middle daughter and Julia's the younger. They kept house for William after Elizabeth died um, and they fought for women's higher education. They acted as governors for Manchester High School girls. They founded the Manchester Social Club and they turned the open space opposite Plymouth Grove into a recreation ground. Did you see this portion of garden opposite the house? Yeah. That's it. Oh, wow. Recreation ground. That's brilliant. I feel like what a legacy to be able to, hundreds of years later, be like, yeah, look, that's that's still there. That's still being used, still being appreciated. There's there's even more legacy because after Julia's death in 1908, Meta turned two houses in on like Plymouth Grove, that street, into a nursing home in her memory. She does die five years later in 1913, and as I was talking to you about earlier, um, all of the books. They're auctioned off. All the things in the house are also auctioned mm. off. Um, and here's just a little bit of, of people talking about Plymouth Grove. So Lewis M. Hayes wrote in 1881, it was quite a charming walk out to Plymouth Grove when it was situated in the heart of the country. So when Elizabeth first had her, her field, oh, her yeah. cow, um, and shaded by a pretty avenue of trees and vocal with the songbirds. Now, alas... These trees are, many of them, black and grim, some of them dead, whilst others try to live out a fitful existence. Oh, wow. So, like, the city just expanded so much, so quickly, that this was no longer sort of that far away. So yeah, everything sort of popped up. The rural up. just became urban, I guess. Although, quite nicely, as we're sitting here, Outside of Gaskell's house, this is now a tree-lined street. Once again, even, um, yeah, the original street is tree-lined as well. Yeah. So things have changed. Yeah, so yeah, damage was done, but re- regrowth happened. Okay. And now Gaskell's house stands really, it really, well, it really stands out, is what I'm trying to say, in comparison to the surroundings. Oh, you're not prepared, because people thought it stood out too much. Oh, Okay, so after the Gaskell's death, there was the suggestion of turning the house into a museum. Hmm. And the local authority, the Manchester Guardian, quoting them, stated, The house belonged to one of the ugliest periods of architecture and was of no value beyond its association with the Gaskell family. What? Harsh! That's so unfair. It is not an ugly building. Not it's not. not. <laughs> it's rude. And, like, there used to be a lot of houses along this road that looked like that. This is just the one that Manchester is standing. So 
So oh, actually, mm-hmm. Gaskell and Gaskell's fame and legacy saved that piece of architecture on the street. Well, it gets saved because when they auctioned off the house, the house was purchased by Charles William Harper, a manufacturing chemist, where he and his wife and children lived. Oh. The eldest Harper daughter went on to become an actress, and their middle daughter became a professional harpist, the first female member of the Halle Orchestra. Um, and Halle had also been friends of the Gaskell and already visited Cliff Grove, so... Oh, that's brilliant. Gaskell Connections, yeah. so you were right, Gaskell Connections are definitely involved in it. Um, so the morning room, which was used by uh, the Gaskell's children, was used by the Harpers as a music room. Right, makes sense. So when the Harper line dies out, the University of Manchester purchased the building mm. in 1969 and converted it into accommodation for international students. Oh, Have wow. I not told you this before? What a place to be able to stay. I know. Because I, know, uh, I, th- I honestly think about this all the time. You're, you're not prepared. You're not prepared. So, so obviously they sort of had their bedrooms and their bathrooms and showers all there. But apparently I'd heard from doing a little bit of digging, you know, the tea room and the basement where you know, the servants hall. Yeah. That apparently used to be used as a little club room. Oh. Clubbing and gas oh, house. <laughs> yeah. And also, brace yourself for this one. They painted the building that baby pink from like the 1970s. Oh, wow. Yeah. Okay, that would have looked quite... It different. looks unique, <laughs> is what I'm going to say. Yeah. And apparently some locals still refer to it as the pink house. Oh. It is now, for those who can't see, like a nice kind of cream coloured. Yeah. Because that, that's stone. what's written in a lot of her letters and they try to restore it as much as possible. Yeah. So, I think mm-hmm. I like it the way it is. I'm glad it's not the pink house. <laughs> I'm thrilled. It's not. I mean, I'm sure that the international students had a whale of time. I... I really want to find it again, but I feel like it's going to be impossible because I saw it on Twitter months ago of basically someone whose parents were international students in the 1970s in Russia and lived there because she was quite a young child and they had Christmas there and you can see the Christmas tree in the Gaskell drawing room and everything. <laughs> and that, because that, yeah, that was just where she lived. Yeah. Which I think that's is amazing. so strange. It's such a, a strange thought. But yeah, especially when we've just kind of seen it as it was. It's strange to think that, you know, it was the way it was and then it was pink and had a club in it and then now it's back to the way it was. Yeah, so the university relinquishes the building in 2000 and since then for like the last 23 years we've been very, very slowly restoring it, mostly with donations. Yeah, so actually the way we're seeing it now is quite recent. This is probably ongoing work I'd imagine yeah definitely I mean they had a little bit of a toss-up to begin with about what room they were going to restore next because there's I mean with a heritage site I feel there's always something to be doing yeah there's always something you could do but I think everyone decided that they wanted Elizabeth Gaskell's room so that's the one that they decided they were going to do that was completed a couple of years ago in 1818 no no 2021 (laughs) we've fully just gone back in time now to the 1800s (laughs) oh the terror the terror of doing that would be too much to comprehend so here we are literally sat in Gaskell's drawing room this is such an impressive drawing room we are literally sat in chairs around the fireplace with a victorian tea set in front of us for afternoon tea a copy of the times from 1860 
this is a beautiful room. <laughs> it is gorgeous. And I really like how close it makes you feel to the time as well, because they've been really, really careful with the reconstruction of Gaskell House. So there's lots of things that a lot of what we're seeing, a lot of what we're even sitting on are Victorian and period appropriate. They're not from Gaskell House itself because a lot of that was auctioned off in 1914. Oh, shame. I know, I know. I mean, to an extent, it is kind of useful almost that it was auctioned off because it meant that we actually have lists of what they owned. So, you know, yes. things sort of weren't like lost or passed on that would be difficult to trap. At least there was sort of a definitive list yeah, of what so was here. Yeah, there was a traceable catalogue of items genuinely owned by. Yeah, so it kind of worked out well. I think so. There's also a lovely piano in <laughs> up the corner. I can imagine them entertaining in here. I can imagine people coming in. Famous writers of the day having tea sitting here with Gaskell. It's a good room to be entertaining in. They'd still have it. What is it? So did you know that in this room was one of the places that Elizabeth Gaspar would have entertained Charlotte Bronte? Do you know the very, very famous anecdote about when Charlotte stayed here? I mean, she stayed here three times in 1851, 1853 and 1854. I don't think I do. Charlotte was a little bit shy. So Gaspar was quite a, as we know, like literary salon. She was very, very busy, liked to entertain mm -hmm. a lot. Charlotte, coming from Haworth, she lived in, you know, the parsonage. It was a bit of a quieter space, even in the Victorian period, even when it sort of expanded. And at one point, I think she just, she she was done with Elizabeth for the day. She was done with, she was done with seeing people. She wasn't in the mood. And so Elizabeth went to greet people into the room. She left Charlotte here. She came back in, gone no idea where she went and so she sort of said oh um sat down and said oh she must have stepped out of the room um and so she had you know the 15 20 minutes you know if we're to believe Cranford of entertaining somebody and then she went okay well goodbye and then she found Charlotte behind a curtain oh in the room goodness. and to commemorate that Gaskell House of a tiny crocheted Charlotte behind a curtain I love her oh yeah <laughs> there she is she's literally tucked into the kind of like insert in indented what do you call it window yeah behind <laughs> yeah, the garden that's brilliant i i feel charlotte brunson is pain with that um having to entertain too many people in one day is I feel like potentially you'd be Charlotte Bronte and I'd be Elizabeth Gaskell because I'm taller and a larger woman and you're a slighter woman as well. And you can kind of see how that would work out for Charlotte, given the fact that a lot of those literary, um, I don't know if you've seen one of those literary measurings of height. They usually have William Thackeray right at the top because he's a really tall man. Yeah. And they have Charlotte Bronte and Charlotte Bronte's put next to an emperor penguin and they're like the same height. Oh, goodness. I love Bronte. Of course. <laughs> But yeah, I just wanted I to double check the Easter egg <laughs> of this room. Yeah, that's brilliant. Yeah, you would not believe the joy I felt the first time that I came in here and I was like, Bronte. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, if you come here, you have to find the secret Charlotte Bronte behind the curtain. And now we go into the dining room. Oh, wow, this is very pretty too. It is beautiful. Oh, and it's all laid out as they were about to have dinner with bread rolls. <laughs> yes. So this would have been their everyday china. It's very bright. 
it is I mean as we find with a lot of things when we sort of clean it up sort of like you know when you see those TikToks of like Edwardian paintings that they yeah. redo or like medieval yeah. plaster if you imagine almost everything's been kind of muted or sepia tone but actually once it's clean it's not yeah it's got like this royal blue this blushing pink this like really kind of rich green and kind of like a mustardy yellow yeah. it's bright bright work kind of joyful yeah. to have that on your table it is particularly it's we're fancy. in a heat wave so summer it's very yeah, floral it is very summer and then the second table in here yes so i mean we've we've briefly gone past it so william gets that big study room right right this is the dining room this is where elizabeth wrote ah. this is her space and that's why you see that that little magnet that I have at home as well that says, um, you know, home, there's constant interruptions. And it was because she's often sat here. So there's the hallway just over there. William study is just a yeah. little bit. And, you know, people want to come from the drawing room and there's out to the garden. And so when she got a little bit sick of writing or a little bit tired or needed a breather, she went out to check on her cow and her chickens. That sounds very nice. I mean, she was literally then writing just in the middle of the domestic sphere it wasn't like lock myself away in an office and try to ignore the world while I write it was just yeah I'm sitting in the middle of the dining room with a nice view of the garden so I know it must have been very different to Chawton House because Chawton House it has this tiny tiny little table and I remember seeing it as a child when I first went to visit Austin's house and I thought how did you write on this tiny table this is yeah. a big table this has three big windows surrounding it yeah good light as well amazing light even in winter I can imagine Apparently you can have your wedding at Elizabeth Gaskell's house. That's an interesting feature. <laughs> so, speaking of weddings, I have a tiny little clip from a Gaskell letter talking about her own marriage. Now, if you're a bride listening, or a bride-to-be listening, I would say brace yourselves, because I know that those um, preparations usually take a year or more. But from this letter... Gaskell says, well, she was Elizabeth Stevenson at the time, but Gaskell. Yeah. <laughs> I am in the middle, or rather I hope, three quarters through the bustle of wedding gowns, though in the opinion of some sage people, preparations for marriage should not be begun before the last fortnight. And it wants rather more <laughs> than to that day when I am to learn obedience at the 30th this month, never having received a letter from any lady similarly situated, I don't the least know how to express myself on the reason, but I fancy to learn obedience is something new. To me, at least, it is. Oh, wow. I, I hope that was quite tongue-in-cheek. I don't feel like she would have ever wanted to learn obedience. <laughs> no, so when she's speaking to people later on in life, uh, she says that sometimes she kind of wished that William was a bit more commanding because she didn't like how many decisions she had to make. I feel like she had quite intense decision oh. fatigue. But she says, even if we'd lived in those dark ages, I do not think of the threat and attacks that he would have ever commanded me. She's just yeah. a very placid man. Yeah. Should we check oh, out? Which way do you want to go? From the top of the stairs, there are many options. Shall we so go? We have the manager's office, but on either side of the exhibition rooms, and those ones are changing. So I haven't actually seen these ones because it's been a number of years since I last got to see Gaspar House. Mm. I'm very excited to see the bedroom, but should we save that? <laughs> I think we should save it. So when Elizabeth Gaskell got married to William, there was this old tradition of sanding houses. So you take white sand and red sand and you can basically 
put verses on the floor or flowers and things like that. And basically, you could tell a bride's popularity by how many people had sanded the house. And nearly every house in Knutsford was sanded for Elizabeth. Aww, I like that. I love that. That's a nice tradition too. I'm particularly excited because I spotted a copy of Household Words in the top of this cabinet, which I think is, yeah, it's the first, is it the first? North and South installation? No, it's, yeah, it is actually, it is the first. Hang on. Edith did Margaret gently. Edith, but as Margaret half suspected, Edith had fallen asleep. She lay curled up on the sofa in the back drawing room in Harley Street, looking very lovely in her white muslin and blue ribbons. Yeah. Yes, famous first sentence. Yeah, that is brilliant. So, yeah, it tells you that North and South was published in 20 weekly instalments in the Journal of Household Words, which was edited by Charles Dickens. And the first one was published on the 2nd of September, 1854. It was. Which is very close to this time, because it is September. <laughs> it is. Do you want to know some North and South drama? The classic yeah. drama. Okay. Was it Dickens drama? <laughs> So much Dickens drama. Always Dickens drama. <laughs> okay. So not only did he seem to almost immediately regret basically taking on the work of North and South because sales of Household Worlds dropped. Right. Which is ironic because he was like, my, my Hard Times was an absolute banger. I completely knocked it out of the park with that one. And she is trawling with North and South. It's ironic because I would probably hazard a guess to say that North and South is a little more popular nowadays than yeah. Hard Times. And second of all, basically, Gaskell was terrible at editing herself down, so she kept sending him pieces that were too large. Mm. William did intervene at one point to essentially say, right, okay, well, she can't edit it down, so can you just basically extend the margins? I said, yes, fine. But then by the end of it, I think the publisher, the printer, Dickens, had all kind of had enough of it. So instead of it being a 22-part serial, which most are, he cut it down to a 20-part. Oh, which okay. is why the ending is that. terribly abrupt oh. of North and South. You get one oh, little kiss. Well, you get one little kiss between Margaret and Thornton. They sort of have that moment where they come together, almost very Austen-like in some senses, people have mentioned. Because you have that moment where they just come together and you don't really see much mm. beyond that. You know, they're in a drawing room. But what might we have had? <laughs> well, <laughs> Gaskell did have the opportunity to alter it because she'd done the serial with Dickens, but then the book went to publish as a standalone, right? Yeah, yeah. So if she wanted to add something, she could have done, but I think that in the aftermath, she was like, no, the brevity of this it works. works. Yeah. Well, so kind of all things happen for a reason, I guess. I think so. Yeah. So what I like about this house is there's not really, like all the doors seem to open onto one another. There's not that many corridors. Mm. It's all quite a flowing design. Yeah, that's very true. Yeah, apparently it was built in 1839 by quite an eccentric bachelor. Mm. That's why there's not really like very many blocked off private spaces. That, I think that's why it flows a bit more. Oh, okay. Yeah, because it does. You, it does feel quite open, really, for such an old house. So at this point, we visited the bedroom, which was the most recently completed part of the house in May 2021, I think it was, Emma. Yeah, that's right. So I hadn't seen this, actually. This was a new addition for me because I haven't visited there since I think it was about 2018. So that's been in the makings for a while. And they had a I think quite a big unveiling for it because they had spent so much time and so much money on it 
Um, so we had a little bit of a look around and they basically tried to put together the room as much as possible from the 1814 auction catalogue that I mentioned earlier when we were in the drawing room so they could figure out just through like a series of elimination what might have been in that space. Um, so I think they sourced quite widely to see what they'd be able to pick up because as we mentioned earlier, they do tend to like things that are from the Victorian period um, and before apparently as well because whilst we were there we noticed that it had that gorgeous full poster bed yeah definitely yeah. the the thing that dominates the whole room which actually isn't that large of a room really no so Elizabeth kept her biggest room which is now the Bronte room the largest room for her guests so it's I actually quite like it I think it's quite a small cozy room yeah and I think it would I know I always say this I say this every I'm a menace I should never be taken to a stately home because every single time all I do is mention about the cost of heating <laughs> you and did just mention that an, a couple of times I did. <laughs> we cut all the times I mentioned it thus far. But all I'm saying is it's a small, cute little bedroom with a nice little four-poster bed. And I think that even in the modern age, it would be quite economical to heat in comparison to some of the larger rooms. So that four-poster bed has been attributed to master makers Gillows of Lancaster and was thought to be built around 1785. Um, and apparently, according to the Trust, it is meant to reflect the fact that some of Elizabeth's furniture may have been second-hand or family heirlooms from her relations in Nutsford. Yeah. So I think the piece in that room that was probably my favourite, although the bed is very impressive and obviously being that old is immediately very impressive that they managed to find that. But I think my favourite was actually the wardrobe, which they had just packed full of genuine Victorian things. So on the one hand, you had the the actual silk dresses, which you could touch. You can just open up the wardrobe and kind of like bring those out. And on the other side, which are in glass cases, understandably, there's like a row of glass cases, which all have smaller items um, from the correct period, like lace and shoes and um, as you particularly noticed, Emma, the Indian shawls. Yeah, um, those those were beautiful. I mean, it's one of those casements and I feel like um, as a taller person, it was easier to see. Because um, <laughs> what we will say is that while the dining room was awash with light, this room in the middle of the day during a heat wave in early September was a little bit dark. And I suppose... Actually, from a conservation standpoint, that was probably very good for the materials yes. um, that were in those glass cases. That is true. But yes, the, the Indian shawls were gorgeous and definitely reminded us of the opening to North and South when Margaret is stood basically being used like a, a, a dresser's doll mm. as they kind of drape all of these gorgeous Indian shawls over her because it's part of Edith's dowry. And they're like, oh, won't Edith look great in this? And they're like, oh, this works so well on Margaret because Margaret's wearing all black. So she's like a blank canvas. <laughs> I was like, gosh, all right then. I was like, I think Margaret looks lovely, but fine. 
the wardrobe is a huge tall wardrobe and so if you're watching this on the youtube channel and you can see the images that we took while we were there then some of the images that you're looking at had to be taken by emma because i was in fact too short to see what i was taking for the top shelf team operation friends yes (laughs) speaking of the fabrics in the room the carpet was another quite impressive find wasn't it Yeah, the carpet is incredibly vivid. It's got really strong blues and really deep reds. And it is, I would say, quite uh, overpowering in a room the size of Elizabeth's bedroom. It's quite small. Um, But it is one of the things that the conservationists picked out specially. Uh, So it was known that Elizabeth preferred to have the house with fitted carpets rather than unfitted carpets and rugs. And the team were able to find one of the last pieces of Yorkshire-made Brussels-looped carpet, uh, which had been specifically hand-stitched in panels, Mm. just like it would have been in 1860. Yeah, I mean, that is a really incredible find. I can imagine that was very exciting when they managed to get hold of that. As somebody who reveres the heritage world, but also has no discernible skill, I cannot imagine the pressure of having to even hand stitch those panels and just be like, gosh, I hope that this works with all the people who are going to stand on this carpet. Oh, no, (laughs) that is true. I mean, one of the things... I don't think we've mentioned this actually elsewhere in the episode, but one of the things that's kind of uh, notable about Gaskell's house is that you can really just touch nearly everything. You walk around on that on that carpet and you can touch the bed and there's kind of like night clothes uh, strewn over the bed that you can just like pick up and look at. And it is quite... Um, Quite a tactile experience. The only things that, like, obviously you can't touch are the things that are in glass cases, like the the things that we saw in the wardrobe. That, and I think two chairs in the drawing room, but aside from that, you can touch literally yeah. everything. Although we never did discover why you can't sit on just no. those two chairs in no. the drawing room. They didn't room. even look particularly impressive or different Dainty. or old. No. I just... Imagine, oh, I've just had, I've just had an aside of a thought. Oh. What if, what if the volunteers just say that because it's their chairs, <laughs> and they just tell everybody just don't sit in it? I mean, we go, oh my god, it must be so expensive or old or or important. And it's like, no, it's just my <laughs> chair. Stay out of it. That's quite possible. Okay, we'll have to solve the mystery of why you can't sit in that chair uh, on the next visit. <laughs> oh my gosh yeah it's a shame that we uh couldn't record our initial reaction to the bedroom but unfortunately it was just a a bit too noisy in there so the um recording that we did get was was too broken up so yeah it's a small room and because it's so new lots of people wanted to come and see it so it just and it's it's you're sort of in a corridor as well yeah out of it there's not really a place it is. It's one be. of yeah, one of the more kind of um enclosed spaces I think it feels like within the house, which is as we said before, it's generally quite open. Very homey. Yeah. 
and after which, after we'd finished looking around in the bedroom, we got to go and explore outside. We did. The outside's my favourite. <laughs> it was. It was really outside. lovely. Even though we were, we did get rained on for a portion of our recording. But it's okay, listeners. Our equipment <laughs> is sturdy. Yes. I was not though. I was very soggy. <laughs> yeah. So we will now take you through Elizabeth Gaskell's garden. So we've just come out of Gaskell's house slightly abruptly because we thought that it would close at half past four, but actually um, it started closing up for four o'clock, which is apparently uh, we were speaking to one of the volunteers and it, it depends on the day of who's volunteering at the time. Today, there would only have been one volunteer left um, after four o'clock. And so all of the rooms have closed, but we're going to have a nice walk around the gardens now. Yes. Which are really lovely. Yes, they're all in bloom now. And there's even a little QR code kind of trail that you can take to explore Gassel's Garden. So that's, it's actually very much improved since I was last here in 2018 because they didn't have the funding to do this yet. So this is very neat. And of course it was Christmas, so nothing was alive anyway. Well, that's lovely. Underneath a tree there is uh, a Charlotte Bronte quote, a whispering of leaves and a perfume of flowers. Which is what she said when she said that she visited here and she was in the drawing room and she was saying how warm it was. And she was like, it's so warm. They've thrown open all the windows and... Yeah, Gaskell was very into her garden. So it was kind of half garden, half farm. So I was looking into what exactly Gaskell was doing with her farmland. So in March of 1851, she wrote to Marianne, we've got peas, artichokes, cabbages, mignonette, down, pinks, carnations, campions, canterbury bells, we're giving up on the beans as they did not answer. We have sown mustard, cress, radishes, lettuces, and cauliflowers. Wow, that was quite a selection of vegetables. She had animals too, didn't she? She did. Um, so she actually describes her cow as a pet. She kind of loves her cow. Aww. I think it's really sweet. <laughs> um, and so that she had the garden, and then she also had the adjoining field off to the right of the house. Um, and there, so there was the room for the cow. Uh, she also got eggs from her chickens. Um, they made their own butter. There was a little outhouse that they converted into a dairy, which was still standing in 1910, complete with the milking stalls. Oh, wow. But that's gone now, I assume. Yeah, I think it's what that block of flats now is. Oh, oh that's sad. But, yeah, that's pretty amazing. She obviously liked the outdoors. <laughs> she did. And, of course, here's the famous quote. One may get out without a bonnet by the back stairs. So remember we were in the dining room and there were three doors. Yeah. One of them from the drawing room, one of them into the hallway, and the one on the left was this door. Ah. So she could just pop straight out downstairs, be in the garden. That's and perfect. Yes. I love that. To be a farm lady, not in marionette, sorry, Marie Antoinette style, because she liked having a little farm, but I think she also like dressing up with her bonnet and dress and farm clothes. But Elizabeth, just straight out the door, no bonnet, just hands straight in the earth. Or I guess to chat to her cow, I wonder what she said to her cow, because I feel like if she sees the cow as a pet and she literally says, quote, it's such a pet. Yeah. I think she's a talk to the cow. I do. 
and that would be a very interesting historic conversation to listen to. I think so too. There are actually, I turned around and there are beans. Okay, so they do answer. In 2023, beans do answer. Yes, they do. Eventually. I feel like Asper would have been pleased with that. <laughs> I think so too. Yeah, so there is actually a vegetable patch. I can definitely imagine her coming out of that back door and just kind of, you know, sick of the the writing process, yeah, as you do, just getting a bit frustrated with it. <laughs> and coming out here to just mess in the garden, pick some vegetables. There are apples growing over the fence as well. Yes. So we've I'm got a full range. Them. I haven't seen her write of any, but to be fair, she writes about it fairly regularly with seasonal plants. I just, it's been a while. I've, it's one of those things that I've never, I've never looked for. Never done botanical gaskel no. before. <laughs> if anybody has done botanical gaskel, let us know. This is a beautiful archway. We found it. We found one of them. Ah, what okay. is it? Here we are. So in this little, what would you call it? Like a little arbor? Yeah. Yeah, That's so sneaking up the sides of it are roses and clematis. Yeah. Now, if you remember, clematis is what George Eliot called herself when she signed off oh, her yeah. name in our Language of Flowers episode. And I thought that was a nice little connection. Yeah. I wonder whether she ever kind of looked out at her, at the clematis out here and thought, yeah, clematis. <laughs> when her mother died, her father essentially didn't entirely know what to do with her and did what many men of the period would have done, which is he sent her to female relatives. So that's when he sent her yeah. to Nutsford. Ah, I see. And when she moves to Nutsford, she's actually um, going to be the child of her aunt. Unfortunately, her aunt is disabled. Oh. She's, she made all these plans of, you know, she made sure Elizabeth's crib would have fit in her room. She, she says to her mum, you know, I really, really want to adopt Elizabeth. I really, really want this child. Um, so like I said, she makes sure that the crib fits in her room. She says, I'm going to sew her clothes. It's like, I've sought this through. Mm. Um Unfortunately, she does look after Elizabeth, she, but she dies within a year. So then, oh, no. Yeah. So then Aunt Lum takes care of her after that. Oh, that's so sad. It is really sad. So, like, Elizabeth sort of, like, lost her mother, and then she lost her adoptive mother, um, and then Hannah Lum kind of steps up to the plate. But when she moves to Stevenson, no one calls her Elizabeth. Everyone calls her Lily. Hey. And given the kind of connotations of Lily as a mourning flower in the Victorian yeah. period, there's also that. So, but that carries on throughout her life. So, like, pretty much everyone who's sort of close to her in her family calls her Lily and not Elizabeth. Oh, that's really interesting. I didn't know that. So, speaking of Gaskell's mother dying, and then the woman who mothered Gaskell dying not long after she was looking after her, I know that motherhood and Gaskell is something that you've been looking at a bit. Yeah, it's it's quite sad actually. So kind of brace yourself for this one. Oh no, um, is it sadder than what we just already there's, discussed? There's more loss. Yeah. So in late 1845, William and Elizabeth took Marianne and then nine-month-old Willie and their nurse Ferguson on a holiday to Wales, and they stayed in 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 Festiniog, in the middle of Snowdonia. Hmm. But unknown to them, their mountain villages were as full of infection of scarlet fever as the cities had been. Oh no. Yeah, so within a few days, Marianne gets sick with scarlet fever. She does recover 10 days later, and then they took her to convalesce in Port Maddock. But 
just when the danger seemed to be over, Willie suddenly started showing alarming symptoms, and their landlady, Mrs. Hughes, tried to help all that she could, but because he was nine months, he was just too small, oh. and he ends up dying, unfortunately. Oh, no. Yeah, it's quite a rough time, particularly since, actually, Gaskell's first pregnancy ends up um, in a stillbirth. Oh. Um, so she she has difficult aspects of motherhood as well. Um and I actually find it quite sweet because after her first stillborn daughter is put in a grave, she doesn't name her, um, she gets pregnant again and she has Marianne. And she actually decides basically to keep a baby book mm. and kind of write about all of um, her feelings about being a mother. She really wants to write a load of it down because she's like, essentially, what if she leaves this mortal coil before her child grows up and she's like I want her to have words I want her to have me to guide yeah. her oh that's really it's nice and sad at the same time because it seems as though that would have been inspired by the loss of her own mother and the kind of fear of fear of loss that comes with that yeah so she does she basically describes what it's like to be a mother in it and she gets very anxious of like all of the little illnesses and she's mm. kind of keeping really big really close paying really close attention to Marianne. And at one point she writes, I had no idea the journal of my own disposition and feelings was so intimately connected with that little baby whose regular gentle breathing has been the music of my thought all the time I have been writing. Aww. That's so, really sweet. It's so adorable. So I just think of her, you know, kind of with Marianne next to her in the little crib as she's writing that. Yeah. Just this gentle baby breathing. It's, she kind of like, looks over with this like intense anxious love yeah yeah because she her mother didn't really leave much for her not not really i mean her mother dies when elizabeth herself is 13 months old yeah. um so she she does occasionally get letters that have been given to people yet she writes this this little letter to somebody who's given her a packet of her mother's letters. She says, I will not let the sour pass, my dear sir, without acknowledging your kindness in sending me my dear mother's letters, the only relics that I have of her and of more value to me than I can express, for I have so longed for some little thing that had once been hers or touched by her. I think no one but one so unfortunate as to be early motherless can enter into the craving that one has after the loss of a mother I have been brought up away from all those who knew my parents and therefore those who come to me with a remembrance of them as an introduction seem to have a holy claim on my regard. Oh, again, nice, but also heartbreaking. Heart-wrenching. Yeah. Um, and, and you know, I feel like this is a very vague connection, but when we were in the house and we were looking at the space where she wrote, which was very much in the centre of the domestic space, and I feel like that kind of physically sums up almost kind of I don't know Gaskell's Gaskell's approach sort of explains almost her her tone with so much tragedy and and heartbreak and I think I told you before the first um introduction I had to Elizabeth Gaskell was Mary Barton which I read with no warning (laughs) if the listeners haven't ever read mary barton it is dark from the very beginning it is relentlessly dark yeah heartbreaking maybe don't read it when you're not in the best state of mind you know it's it's a beautiful piece of literature it's a really moving piece of literature but it is something that yeah it, it takes a lot of turns a lot of different turns yeah and now i know obviously the beginning of mary barton 
without giving any spoilers away, is heartbreaking for a different yet slightly connected reason to um, <laughs> to what we've just been talking about. But still, I feel like having had that conversation, I feel like I slightly understand more the the darkness, the the sadness of Gaskell's work. And I think it also became quite difficult for her. So like other scholars have looked into this in terms of basically how she balanced, in that sense, her writing and being a mother. Mm. Because like a lot of the other writers that like I look at, and I think that you've looked at as well, are classically known as quote-unquote spinsters. Yeah. So they don't have those domestic needs or requirements that are put onto them. Mm. So I think she kind of feels this pull a lot of the time of being like, I want to desperately just surround to be with my children all the time. Um, and so she's written a few things on like balancing between artistry Hi. and motherhood. <laughs> yeah, yeah, she writes about it a lot. She she gives advice, she writes in her letters. Um, so she wrote to somebody, the exercise of a talent or power is always a pleasure, but one should weigh well whether this pleasure may not be obtained by the sacrifice of some duty. When I had little children, I do not think that I could have written stories because I should have become so absorbed in my fictitious people to attend my real ones. Okay. I mean, she says that in advice of someone basically saying, oh, you know, how is being a mother and, and writing? And Elizabeth does come back with that, but she was still writing when her children were really small. Yeah, but also how interesting that she's there kind of conflating her children as in literally the children mm. that she's given birth to with the characters that she wrote almost as though they are her children like i can't i can't balance those children and these children yeah. these inventions and and these creations it's so, it's interesting that the world becomes so real for her i guess that's as you're saying earlier why she might be so seated in the domestic yeah. because she's so in her head but then you know she's got the garden out one side william down one corridor and the drawing room so she's kind of almost forced to be in the world because she doesn't yeah. have that private writing space that William has. There's another quote that I personally find quite uh, touching when I think about, you know that, uh, and I always misquote this, but I hope everyone will know the one that I mean, where in Jane Eyre, where Jane is kind of like looking out to the horizon, she she knows she's bound by the horizon. Yeah. Yeah. So there's this quote from Elizabeth Nassau that says, I feel a stirring instinct and I long to be off in the deep, grassy solitudes of the country, just like birds waken at the change of the season and tends its way to some well-known but till then forgotten land. But as I happen to be a woman instead of a bird, as I have ties at home and duties to perform, as moreover, I have no wings like a dove to fly away, why I must stay at home and content myself with recalling the happy scenes which your books bring up before me. That's a lovely quote. I really like that. I kind of like need for escape. Also, it makes me think of I am no bird and <laughs> no net ensnares me. I oh, see, imagine just them on holiday, as yeah. we were saying earlier. Lo love to see it. Yeah, I like that. I like that it wasn't also a cage for her, the domestic sphere. It was just this is, this is part of me as much as my writing's part of me. Like mm -hmm. everything's so deeply connected. I think it also kind of connects with something that, again, it might seem a little bit outdated to other people, but I think people still, I feel understand what I mean when I say this, of being like the the many different pools that you have, particularly as a woman, if you bear children, there's still the expectation of being like very heavily involved. And I think people still have that difficulty of 
trying to tend to yourself as an individual but also trying to be the best mother possible and it sometimes feels like you can't do both yeah yeah because it becomes a kind of identity but one that's not necessarily separate from from your previous identity yeah definitely interesting from Gaskell's perspective we thought it would be nice to finish off this episode with some fun facts that we didn't get to include in the course of the day. So, Emma, what's our first fun fact about Elizabeth Gaskell? Hi, Hayley. How much do you know about phrenology? Enough to know that it's weird. <laughs> it's real weird. It's basically, as I understand it now, you're more the scientist amongst us, but it's like the various lumps and bumps and dips in your head are meant to denote certain personality traits. Yeah. Right? Yes, exactly. Okay. So, fun fact, ahead of her time, Elizabeth did not take this seriously at all. In 1831, Elizabeth wrote, I have been studying phrenology during my retirement and intend to illuminate the world in character of lectures soon, so I am completely convinced of it, more especially as I have the reasoning faculty so very strongly developed, and you know what a reasonable person I am. <laughs> yeah, that was, that was sassy. Love it. <laughs> she is a sassy, sassy lady. It's one of those ones where, well, I think about this for pretty much all women ever, I think, wow, what sassy, sassy things were you saying that I will never get to read because somebody burnt your letters? Yes. Oh, a sad thought. Yes. <laughs> I know. Although one of the reasons why we know so many sassy things about Gaskell is because even though she left strict instructions when she sent some letters, they were she's like, burn this as soon as you read it. Some people just didn't. Mm. And that's why we know some of the sassy, sassy gossip. Okay, now we're on for my own sassy gossip. Oh. So, North and South. Can't remember you know the general plot of North and South. Generally, yeah, but do you want to remind everybody? Okay. Uh, Southern Lady Margaret is moved over to Milton North uh, when her father decides that he can no longer basically work within his religion. He has religious doubts. Um, very long story short, because we're not even talking about um, a sexy, sexy capitalist. We're actually talking about uh, Henry Lennox, who is the kind of very sassy, but like very cold and calculating lawyer. Yeah. Mm. He does propose to her shortly before she leaves and she's like, oh, no, yes. stop talking stop all that <laughs> anyway so i think that potentially her own cousin henry might have been inspiration for that particular character oh so i know so we went through that whole section in motherhood speaking about how kind of tumultuous her life was and she was kind of bandied between several relations during her early years yeah yeah. Um, so it was arranged at one point when she was kind of getting into those sort of finishing school years that she would visit relations, which was sort of the custom of her class for like weeks or months at a time. And she visited her cousin, Henry, who was established at 25 Brook Street. He was earning £5,000 a year 
and being firmly attached to the highest social circles. Uh, he did eventually attend six prime ministers as well as the royal family. Wow. Elizabeth does not seem to have got into the like elevated sphere, but I kind of do think that it would be Henry Lennox's ambitions as a lawyer to kind of ingratiate himself with those uh, kind of kind kinds of people. Yeah. So I can kind of see that link there. Potentially. Yeah. Potentially. Don't know whether I'm causing family drama in the Gaskell household right now. <laughs> no, but it's definitely a a similarity that's intriguing. I think so. Okay. Now we're moving on to so you know how I've never once touched on Ruth because it just does not connect to any of the research that I've been doing for five years. Yeah. It's for some reason the thing I have the most to say about. I have two fun facts about Ruth. So if you didn't know, Haley, this story deals with a woman who is sort of she's young she's naive she ends up being in a romantic sexual relationship with a man who obviously does know what he's doing and she ends up falling pregnant uh he abandons her shortly beforehand and it was her second book and it kind of caused a bit of a riot Hmm. i can imagine kind of an an unfortunate time for a minister's wife you know how it is um so there were people in like her husband's congregation who said that, you know, were really disapproving. They said so to her face and to William's face. Some people wrote letters. Some people basically said that they wouldn't allow their female relatives to read it. Some people burnt it. Wow. I know. But even Elizabeth said at one point that she wouldn't just allow any child to have free reign that particular book she said that when the time was right she would sit her daughters down and they would go through it together so she could explain I suppose the pitfalls of what it's like to be an unprotected woman in the period that she was writing in but I find this really fascinating because when you actually look at the list of requests for the book at Portico Library the list of requests was so long that a second copy had to be ordered. Yeah. So some people might have been burning it, some people, but I mean, that is, oh, is it Oscar Wilde or isn't it? I can never, I can never remember. It's, um, oh my God. It's not no news is good news. It's like, um, all publicity is good publicity. Oh yeah. 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 So So, I don't know if people wanted to read the book just to be shocked or whether they were like, what's all this? Yeah. And I mean, doesn't that happen throughout history, really? Something will come out that everyone's like, oh, that's scandalous, that's shocking. And then because of that, almost, it increases in popularity because people kind of, they want to see it. They want to see the scandal, want to see what that's all about. Hayley, you are giving me absolute flashbacks to my A-level class where at one point we were watching a BBC uh, like report from the late 20th century where people were stood in line outside bookshops trying to get copies of Lady Chatterley's Lovers. And yeah. so they go up to people and be like, why are you in line for this book? And a lot of people go, uh, I'm here for a friend. <laughs> no. 
Lady no. Chatterley's lover was actually what immediately popped into my head when, when I was saying that. Yeah. Oh. Although I've never actually read Ruth, and now you've kind of made me want to read it as well. <laughs> People have mixed reactions to it. Um, it's It's one of those books where, you know how... So, like, radicals are like, this doesn't go far enough. Like, spoiler alert, everybody. Uh, she dies at the end. Mm. Um, so they're like, you know, she should have lived because she's like a nice person. And again, spoiler alert, she dies because she ends up looking after the man who put her in that position. He's really oh. sick. And so she decides to nurse him. So mm, so some people are a bit like, uh. And some people are like, so she's too angelic. And I'm just like... I feel like no matter what Gaskell wrote, people are going to have an issue with it. Yeah. Because the bottom line is that Ruth is like a nice person and a good mum. Yeah. Aww. Yep. So this yeah. is another one of your books that you've made me want to read that is probably going to break my heart. <laughs> it's does because her little son is just like a little boy and it's just like oh no and then it's snowing on her grave and it's just like oh. uh, anyway um so here was like another fun quote that i pulled out in regards to ruth says all over the country ruth was debated in drawing rooms clubs churches chapels even oxford colleges josephine butler later the bravest of all opponents of the double standard in the campaign to repeal the Contagious Diseases Act, was a young wife in Oxford in 1853 and bitterly remembers the Don's pious insistence that no pure woman could know of such things. She had heard one young man saying he would not allow his mother to read Ruth. The staggering hypocrisy tallied with her experience when she tried to raise the case of a very young girl seduced by a college fellow and was warned by a university sage to keep silent because it was dangerous to rouse a sleeping lion. Oh. Ridiculous. Hypocrisy. Gross. Yes. Yes. Wow. It is kind of, I don't know, there's almost a, an irony in the fact that in writing these books that were, or specifically that book, which is dealing with, you know, isn't it just incredibly unfair to just be silenced and forgotten and pushed aside and have to deal with all of this on your own? That then the book was kind of silenced and pushed aside, at least people attempted to do that to it, um, to just to protect what was already wrong, what, what the book was highlighting was horrible. Yeah, and... Um you know, I always say this in terms of Anna Letitia Barbold, and I've since found many a quote strewn across many reviews and magazines across the 19th century of people essentially saying that such fiction could actually be incredibly useful because if you were a motherless young girl and you read this story, you would then be able to pick out like these key red flags of, yeah. you know, is this young man like unnecessarily interested in you and sort of all over you and kind of pick out some of those moments as well because Ruth Ruth doesn't understand what's happening to her she never really seems to fully comprehend because nobody's told her the basics of oh 
Well, no one's told her the basics of sex. No one's told her really about the concept of marriage and how entwined those two ideas are for a quote-unquote pure and respectable lady. So she just doesn't even understand that what she's doing by societal standards is like quote-unquote wrong. So Mm. she has that additional, I would say, trauma as well as like just painful, painful incident of realizing that not only is she lost this man who she thought loved her when his mother comes and drags him back but she Mm. also has the sense of like oh on top of everything else i'm like now nobody will associate with me and she can never tell anybody the truth yeah and this is something that we were talking about actually in our mother's day episode wasn't it if anyone listening also listen to to that one how fiction generally could actually be quite useful as as advice for women especially women who didn't have a mother figure so important because i mean what's the main thing that we learn from novels of man is if you don't have a mother figure or you have just a really bad one then then you may you may fall prey to nonsense happening to you Nonsense at the best, bad things at the worst. Mm. Yeah. Please tell me our next fun fact is happier. (laughs) The next fun fact is about a cat. Yes, okay. I like cats. (laughs) Okay, so my favourite fun fact and the fun fact that we're going to leave ourselves on is that we met friend of the podcast, Duncan Hamilton. Yes, I thought this would be where you were going when you said cats. This was... A part that I particularly liked from the day as well. If anyone's ever been to uh, Gaskell House, you might have noticed the very cute plush cats that are just dotted around, um, dressed up as kind of Victorian, in Victorian clothes. They are so cute. Uh, Yeah, they're part of a children's trail, or one of the children's trails in the houses, so that they can go into each room and try to find the little kitty cat. And we asked Duncan about it because not being children, we were unaware of this scheme. <laughs> um, and he did tell us that it is in reference to when Elizabeth herself was gifted a cat from Paris. Yeah. So one very enthusiastic reader of Cranford sent her a cat from Paris calling the cat itself Cranford. It's a very good name for a cat. It is. And I'm now going to tell you a very gross story. Oh, no. I know. I know. I'm sorry. But what I need you to remember as I tell you this story is that it's actually not my fault because Elizabeth actually wrote it. So it's Elizabeth's fault if it's anybody's. Okay. (laughs) So a cat does feature very prominently in Cranford because everybody at Cranford... Um, there's this idea that they've, they're of this kind of like aristocratic poor where no one ever really mentions that everybody's stuff is sort of like old and scuffed and sort of in a bad way, but everyone sort of, you know, holds themselves high in their wares. And so at one point, somebody's old lace has become sort of faded and stained and it's not its best. So they used a method that would brighten up the lace, it would get the stains out, it would look good as new. So they put, they delicately put the lace into a bowl of milk. And the cat saw the bowl of milk and drank it. But it was so enthusiastic in drinking it that this delicate piece of lace went 
down the cat's oh, mouth and into no. its stomach. Somebody does note this in time. So they grab the end of the lace and just sort of tug it out the cat's mouth. Oh, but no. let me tell you, I hate that. I hate that. I hate that entire story. That's the worst. <laughs> Disgusting. I'm glad the cat was Everyone okay. It's really funny. I, it's it's meant to be a comic moment, but every time I read it, I'm like, oh, oh gosh. no, yeah, no, yeah. Particularly since the cat, cat must just be confused. Poor little cat. Poor. But as I understand it, the cat was fine, the lace was fine in this fictional story. So everything's fine. Good. <laughs> Happy ending. Okay. I do have an additional little section that I thought I would pop here of favourite quotes I found. Because I just, Ooh. I love some of them. I love some of them. Oh, I'd love to hear them. Okie dokie, let's do it. So in a letter that she wrote to one of her fellow minister's wives who had heard her talking about a novel that wasn't deemed appropriate, Gaskell wrote, So there I am, in a scrape. Well, it can't be helped. I am myself and nobody else, and I can't be bound by another's rules. That's a good I one. I love it. I love it. Can't put that it. up somewhere. <laughs> Me too. Me too. I like it. Might put it in my commonplace book. Next one. By February of 1865, Elizabeth realised that wives and daughters would stretch to about 870 pages, give or take. And she told basically her publishers that she was finding the story really tricky to tell. And she wrote, I could make it longer. I have so much to say yet, but oh, I am so tired of spinning my brain when I am feeling so far from strong. However, my brains are nothing as yours. How do you manage? I begin to think heaven will be a place where all books and newspapers will be prohibited by St. Peter and the amusement will be in driving in an open carriage to Harrow and eating strawberries and cream forever. <laughs> That's also a good one. Although I would personally like the books. (laughs) I would too. I just love the idea of St. Peter banning all books and newspapers. (laughs) Just like, but like, no, you have to go and sit in an open top carriage. You have to drive to Harrow and enjoy these strawberries and cream forever. (laughs) Oh, no. Sorry. The stoping part of my mind was just like, imagine constantly traveling and never getting to where you need to be and in a bumpy <laughs> carriage and oh no but while trying to I eat like, strawberries and cream <laughs> i do like the idea though i like the idea of caskill being <laughs> petulant and almost childlike of just being like no i just i don't want to know yeah no. and i mean haven't we all reached that point with something where you're just like my brain just just does not want to any <laughs> Just over this. I'm over this whole thing. <laughs> I I also feel too akin to this of just being like, I could make it longer. I have so much to say yet, but oh, I'm just tired of spinning my brain. I feel like that right now with all of my own work. <laughs> <laughs> oh, so we're on to our final little one and this is just a a little wee quote that I quite liked this was on the struggles of finding furniture so I told you when she was leaving or when she was leaving but not leaving because she hadn't told William that she was planning on leaving but right when she bought that house and when she had a lodger for it and do you remember 
she thought that all the furniture was just hideous. Yeah. So she was trying to find furniture and she kept running into dead ends. And in the end, she wrote, spilt milk, spilt fatigue and disappointment and money. And I just like that. I just like yeah. that. I like that it takes the phrase spilt milk further. I'm going to yeah. say it to everybody. Spilt milk, spilt fatigue. <laughs> Love it. Yeah, that's just that moment where you're just, I'm just done with this. <laughs> Over this. <laughs> Particularly since she's trying to do it in secret and just like randomly sending off all of her daughters to like corners of the South being like, go and see if this is a good chest of drawers. <laughs> Yeah, this is just endlessly quotable, Gaskell. I'm glad we have her letters. She is, and yeah, we've got the letters, we've got the further letters. There's a huge amount of them. But it does make me wonder how much more we missed. Yeah. That's the problem, isn't it? Always wondering. Always, yeah. And on that note... At least we have what we have. Yeah, exactly. Which is actually quite a lot when it comes to Gaskell. I know. Um, I just, I like that we still have, like, her pithy witticisms. Yeah, me too. And the house, back to the way that it was, because as you were saying, Mm. it just seems odd, but also really nice that it's kind of gone gone backwards from being the pink house and (laughs) all that that entailed back into its its past life as a recreation of, of Gaskell's house. Which is very nice to visit as well. Yes, yes. And we highly, highly recommend taking a little walk around the garden. We recommend trying to psychically know when Duncan is volunteering on a given day to bump into Duncan, have a chat there. And we also (laughs) recommend going on the first Sunday of every month where there's also an additional secondhand book sale, which takes up two big rooms. And Hayley and I bought books. We did. Yes, definitely highly recommend that part. Oh, yes. The cake was good too. (laughs) The cake was so good. Um, So yeah, in case you didn't know, Elizabeth Gaskell's house, they do tea for two and they do some really good cakes. So that's another reason why you should go. Yes. So we hope that you enjoyed coming with us on our trip to Elizabeth Gaskell's house. Next month, it's going to be spooky month october and if you join us for that we will be talking about dreams which i can't wait to talk about it's a Haley month friends <laughs> so you've you've had enough of me this is your emma episode it's we're going over to Haley's territory Haley's ballpark <laughs> dreams yeah and dreams if you're wondering dream guides if you're wondering what is spooky about dreams then you're in for a shock <laughs> next month everything's spooky about dreams yes everything's terrifying (laughs) even the concept of dreams when you think about it is really really weird (laughs) oh trust me emma it's gonna get weirder (laughs) oh no oh that reminds me should i start logging my dreams should i start trying to should i write have a dream journal in preparation (laughs) possibly possibly but that will be a surprise for next time so we hope to see you next month.